0: Hi, my name's Paul Ripley. I'm the producer of Steve Berry's Speed Shop. So this week, we thought we'd do something different. I turned the tables on Steve and talked to him about his career, his passion for music and passion for, obviously, for cars and motorbikes. It's a two-part episode. I hope you enjoy it. And welcome to Steve's Speed Shop here on Fab Radio International with my guest, Steve Berry. Oh, this is
1: weird. It is weird. Sat on the other side of the table. Uh, My guest is Steve
0: Berry for a special reason. It's Christmas. It's New Year. We need cheering up. So I thought, Steve (laughs) Berry, if I can dive onto his show and do a show about Steve Berry, because he's also, he's been on Top Gear. No one's ever
1: mentioned that before. (laughs) talk about the early days with Steve hold on a second yeah. if you if you actually listen to the show which as the producer of the show I am assuming you do you'll know every that single week Steve. I frequently self- deprecatingly refer to how long it takes me to mention top gear and i i can usually manage to get but it was a big part of my life i could usually yeah. manage to get yeah. 15 minutes in i was i was with the organization for 10 years don't believe what right. you read on wikipedia um i want to
0: talk about top gear but i want to talk about the earlier days in that really yeah um what got you into, first of all would you a journalist first because you're many things you're a journalist you're a radio presenter you're a tv presenter uh, you, yeah. you know, you're not a big guy yourself as well, just knocking around the place, <laughs> yeah, you're a brewer of tea and coffee.
1: Well, the weird thing is that for the last ten years, I've, I've mainly earned my coin by playing music and talking about music on the radio. So as well as the motoring side of what I did, of what I've done, there's always been music, and that's really how I started. I wanted to be a journalist, I wanted to be a writer. Um, and Oh, by the way,
0: I bought one of your books last year. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ebay.
1: <laughs> it's it's funny how people say, um, Oh yeah, uh, I bought your book off eBay for ninety nine P and I say,
0: Yeah It was one ninety nine mine.
1: You can buy the Beatles White album or Revolver or Sgt. Pepper for ninety nine P and they're amongst the greatest works of art ever created by human beings. So So you're saying I'm saying that my book is also one of the greatest. <laughs> I might redo that book, you know. It's, it's The 100 uh, Greatest Motorbikes, I think. Or something like that. And ten of the cattle.
0: worst. Yeah. Yeah. I did were, agree with you, by the way, on uh, some yeah. of the bikes.
1: Well, we were talking about it because it's got to be 20 years since I did that book. Mm. And at the time, although at the time, the... Did I say the R1 or the 9160K was the best bike? I can't remember. I think it was the R1. I think. I think it was the R1. Because I think now the same reasons that made the R1 the greatest bike apply. Because it brought the sort of performance that on four wheels you would have to spend... An insane amount of money I to don't get. No, Steve, Steve, motorbikes
0: aren't all about
1: performance or are they? No, and I think that the motorbike scene in the UK has changed oh, yeah. massively. Yeah. But although I say that <laughs> I say that I was reading a nineteen seventy-eight copy of Bike magazine yesterday. Wow. Uh and two of the columnists, Mark Williams, the guy who I employed as a columnist later on when I was the editor of Street Fighters magazine, who started Bike Magazine inspired by um, magazines like Rolling Stone, who changed the way that people wrote about music and the stuff people wanted to hear about musicians, from kind of teeny-bop idols to artists. Um, And Mark looked at the motorbike scene in the UK in the 70s and thought, I think it was the pinkin' and the greenin' they were known as, the two motorbike publications. Incredibly staid, incredibly conservative, like the British motorcycle industry, which is why it failed. And so Mark brought rock and roll to motorcycle journalism. And as a kid, I was massively impressed by it. Superbike quickly followed with a copycat format, tried to be more bike, tried to be a super version of bike magazine, Superbike, Um, didn't really work. Although it launched a couple of good writers, including the bloke who subsequently employed me, Steve Meyer, as a, as a journalist. Um, and in this 1978 copy of Bike Magazine, there were two articles, one by Mark Williams and one by a guy called LJK Setright, who's a legend in motoring journalism. And in the Mark Williams article, you've got to remember, March 1978, he was predicting the demise of motorbike magazines and motorcycle journalism because the magazines had started to rely on money, advertising money, from the bike manufacturers. Wow. And in March 78, he was saying, This means nobody's free to express an opinion. LJK Setright, again, I say this, March 1978, was saying the British motorcycle industry could be revived with parts that were cheaply manufactured in the Far East and assembled in the UK. He was saying that in March 78. Amazing. And that's more or less yeah. what the British more motorcycle obvious, industry yeah. is now, today, 2020.
0: Before the magazine, you left school. i to talk about the other days. You left school. Did you know what you wanted to do? Yeah, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write... Wanted to End a cre- story. So I, you,
1: you're really into English? Yeah. Well, that was my thing at school. You know, I used to win the English prize at the grammar school. But when I went to see the careers officer and said I wanted to be a writer, they kind of laughed at me. It was ridiculous. It was like, why... <sighs> Why wouldn't the kid that had managed to get to grammar school and won the English Lit Prize, why wouldn't he want to be a writer? I don't get it. It'd be like saying to the kid who won the physics prize who wanted to be an engineer or a scientist, oh, pipe dream, you know. Mm. And you've got to remember, when I left school, it was at the height of unemployment in this country, even worse than it's going to be, well, maybe not next year, but you never know. Thatcher's millions, four and a half people on the dole. But, like a lot of people the good old YTS, the Youth Trading Scheme, paid me £40, pounds, 40 of your English pounds a week to try and make it as a writer and journalist. And I did. And what did that entail? It entailed me taking pictures, because I also thought to myself, I thought, quite fancy being a photographer. What i a scene seen where there was a photographer and he was cool, and I think it was Blow Up. Okay. You know the, yeah, the yeah. 60s movie, yeah. Antonioni, where David Hemmings... Is uh, he's quite. Is a he's very cool movie, photographer. Yeah, and yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. and I was really interested in in Britain in the sixties at the time, Um like anybody who was who was interested in music and fashion and design and stuff like that would be, because Britain in the eighties was, it was almost like you couldn't believe it was the same place. You thought this country used to be cool. Look at it now, <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> but yeah, so uh the first two things that I did got published, which. Really misled me. This so, shouldn't.
0: So, so bring it back today. So you've got forty pounds a week. Yeah. By the YTS, and you're writing about
1: music and um, scooters, and which
0: is sending it off to
1: magazines. Just that just I like. Yeah. So the
0: first so pictures, you can't email back in them days. So no,
1: was, I just sent pictures. I went to um, I went to a Curtis Mayfield gig. At the International on Plymouth Grove in Manchester. Yep. And I took some pictures. I took my camera. I had a good camera. I took some pictures. I sent them off to ID Magazine and they used them. Right. They used, well, they used one big and one small. Yeah. And I got paid £150. Can't believe it. I wrote an article. I wrote a story, not an article. I wrote a short story about gang of like a sort of inspired by quadrophenia about a gang of scooter boys from manchester and it got published (laughs) and i got paid and i thought wow this is really easy (laughs) no uh and so that encouraged me probably shouldn't have but it did and uh off i went that was it so you got published your parents are happy no they wanted me to be no they wanted me to be an accountant which is crazy I mean have you ever met anyone less inclined or suited to the world of accountancy? My accountant's great, love the guy. Yeah. But he is not like me.
0: It's not creative. Well, I suppose his creative world in that circle Oh he's but, quite creative, yeah. But in a different way, in yeah, a different way, yeah. So you're there, go on what happened next? Step by step we're going normal. Step by
1: step. Right. Really? Well, um many years of hard work. We uh, I worked um for a magazine called Scooter Scene. There were two scooter magazines in the UK, basically. Was, was you a mod as such? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm not... And all these people who go, oh, no, no, I was never really a mod. I was more... Yes, I was a mod, a revival mod. And uh, I didn't really like the sort of mod bands, apart from the jam, who stood head and shoulders above all the other sort of wannabes. Um, but fortunately, Manchester being such a rich city, with a, such a incredible musical heritage when it comes to stuff like that. Um, You know, you could go to Butter Lane Antique Market and the guy would have original racks and racks of original 60s jukebox records uh, from sort of black American acts that you'd never heard of, you'd never heard of on the radio. Just buy loads of records, take them home. and, And then, of course, there was the whole Northern Soul thing, which had carried on and was an evolution from yeah. directly from mod yeah. you know the the, the yeah. first t- use of the word northern soul was by a guy called dave gordon in a magazine called blues and soul and he used it to differentiate the sort of driving beat of the music that was played in northern mod clubs to the more sort of jazzy stuff that was played in the south and that club was a twisted wheel which is two streets away from where we are yeah. now on whitworth street in manchester and was the the Norse-leading mod club. So whatever people want to believe, Northern Soul came directly from mod, and Northern Soul was associated with scooters in the same way that mod was. And so when we arrived as 15-, 16-year-old kids on our Vespa 50s in 1978-79, we encountered the fully-grown blokes who were on the Northern Soul scene who had these amazing tuned-up lambrettas from somebody called Arthur Francis. You know, they, I'll never forget seeing the first two Arthur Francis Lambrettes. These lads had come to Berry Market. to. There was a stall that sold Army Surplus. I think they'd come to buy, like, parkers or sleeping bags or something like that. And, of course, we had our Vespers, which we'd festooned with lights and mirrors because we'd seen Quadrophenia, our little 50cc Vespers and these two sleek, tuned-up, 250cc Lambrettas. We just went straight home, took all the crap off our scooters, started trying to make them go faster, look faster, a a kind of which ended with me owning on the street Uh, a day. This is like, at the time, this is the ultimate specification, and there'll be... There'll be people in whatever sphere of automotive endeavour and they will know what the ultimate spec for the car, motorcycle, whatever it is, whether it's an old Porsche air-cooled rear-engine car, whether it's a Mark II Escort, whether it's a four-cylinder Kawasaki Superbike, there will be a combination of names that makes everyone take a sharp intake of breath. And I say this to people, on the street I had... An MSC, Dave Webster, stage six, 230, running a 34 mil mag-bodied Del Auto. That was, that, that scooter's probably got, in standard trim, that bike would have come out of the factory in Italy with about eight horsepower. And I was rocking well into the mid-twenties. Wow. Which sounds pathetic. You know, like if you no, say like no, no, no. twenty-five brake horsepower. Yeah, yeah. But think about it. Yeah. It's more than three times well <laughs> the engine. Yeah. And of course, if I got past the end of our street, I was normally doing well. That wasn't designed for no, the street. No. It was designed for going round some some of the uh, less salubrious racetracks. I as a as a journalist I followed scooter racing and When people talk about racing in the UK, they think of Brands Hatch, Silverstone, Donington, Alton Park. (laughs) But there's a substrata of race circuits. And the amount of time that I spent at places like Carnaby, Croft, Lydon Hill, for goodness sake. Do you know where Lydon Hill is? No idea. Never heard of it. It's near Dover. Right. Can you imagine setting off from Bury, Lancashire, to go to Dover? No, thank you. To cover scooter racing. Wow. I've got to thank one guy. There was a guy in Berry. Somebody mentioned him the other day to me, and he ran a company called Renter Runner. He was he'd been on holiday in the States, yeah, and he'd come back and he thought, "I'm going to do." Because at the time, this would have been again mid eighties. At the time in the UK, the only car rental that we had was like American car rental companies, Hertz, Avis, that sort of thing, and it was brand new cars, and it was for businessmen, and it cost a fortune. Yep. He went to the States on holiday to Florida and saw the rent-a-wreck concept, came back to the UK and started a company in my whole town called Rent-A-Runner and his strap line was, a tenner a day, no more to pay. Boy, did I do some miles in his cars. He he, he was he knew when he saw me coming through the door, he kind of slumped a bit in his chair because he knew I was probably going to pop four or five hundred miles of one of his cars in a weekend. But without him, I don't know if I could have done it. And and it was just sometimes it's just chance, isn't it, that that, that, that leads to Can I just go back a
0: little bit? We we talk about the scooters. Because um when I left school it was all like fizzes. Yeah, FS one e Yamaha fifty cc things out. Well, yeah, AP fifty. Yeah, Mon- Monte, Garelli Tiger. That's why I had. Yeah, Garelli Garelli Tiger, grow Tiger. Tiger Cross. Yeah, uh, and Galera, Galera also fifty yeah. cc. The Italian stuff.
1: Thing. The Italian stuff was always but more fragile, but better looking than the Japanese. Absolutely stuff. better looking.
0: Anyway, but even in our heads at that time. For some reason, for like ten years earlier, there was this battle between like the mods and rockers, and it still continued into like late seventies, eighties. Mm. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are, are that because you, I think of you, I think of rock music.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, so yeah, but how I, was
0: that? Well, did you get kicked off your scooter by some big hairy biker, no, or or no, did no. you try and
1: no 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 no. Well, some of the some of the lads that we used to hang around with were off the like estate in Whitefield, just north of Manchester, like Ian and Whitey two of my best friends from back then, they were rough lads. Nobody was kicking. I, if you'd have kicked Ian off his scooter, I would have, heaven help you. Mm. Because, you know, even though we sort of looked presentable, we scrubbed up all right, I was relatively one of the posh kids. It was it, it, The mud thing was always, not always, it started in the 60s as quite a middle-class thing and a gay thing, if we're honest about it, as do most subcultures in the UK but let's not go there today. Um, but the mod revival was was very working class, and, and as I say, particularly in the north, where it was associated with Northern Seoul, and there were scooter clubs like Burnley & Pendle, Bolton Roadrunners, York, who were still going from the 60s and still sort of looked like mods, except they wore flares. <laughs> like mods with flares. Yeah, yeah. Although the whole point of mod... In the sixties, it moved incredibly quickly, and something that was the height of fashion one week. And I remember a guy from back in the day telling me that string vests were in for about two or three weeks. Yeah, everyone had them <laughs> because somebody worked out that you could see them under the UV lights in a disco. They, right. They'd show underneath your shirt, okay. so people thought it was like quite a groovy look, and and so they were they were fashionable for about like he said, for about two or three weeks and then you wouldn't have been seen dead in one. The whole point about the mod thing originally was that it was fashion and it moved incredibly quickly. And what people tried to do in the late 70s and still try to do to this day is try and go, no, no, this is what mod is. And it's this specific thing and there are boundaries and there are rules and all that sort of thing. You think, there are no boundaries, there are no rules. That was the whole point it's of it. It's very
0: similar to punk, wasn't it? Very yeah. well, this is what function punk should at- look like in reality it was nothing like that
1: exactly yeah. and my favourite band and we're going to talk about music yeah. are Led Zeppelin, I always call them the greatest band they are the greatest band to me and Robert Plant was the ace face in Wolverhampton in the mid 60s he was the mod he was the mod, he was the fashion leader he was the man but if you like that music then the progression that they made in the 60s is the same progression that I made. I remember buying The Who live at Leeds as a young moddy boy, putting it on Morocco player and thinking, should I even be listening to this? Because that's about as far away as yeah. you can get from a three-minute scar or R&B tune as it's possible to get. And yet I thought, and I still think, that live at Leeds, even though it's actually live at Hull mainly, that album, Fact Fans, mm. is the greatest live album ever recorded. So, you kind of, I'll tell you a guilty secret. Me and my pal Gordon, who were total mods, looked at us, scooters, parkers, three button suits, jam shoes, the lot. We used to go back to his house and listen on his dad's brilliant stereo to Tomato Snowflakes Are Dancing and Jean Michaud Jarre Equinox. That was our guilty secret. <sighs> we liked progressive rock because the Who introduced us to progressive rock. And we liked it.
0: I was I was lost with The Who because when mods liking The Who, because to me, obviously, back in the day when they first started, there was, there was something different and it could have been tied to the mod world. But later on, it's just a rock band, wasn't it? Well,
1: they? to me, the answer to the question which is the greatest band, the Stones or the Beatles, is The Who. I think they're better than both of them, but there you go.
0: Right, see, better. <laughs> journalist
1: is 20 odd now. Uh, what happens next? Um, the company. The magazine I worked for got bought out by a chap in Manchester called Steve Myer, who was a big influence on my career. Um, And we moved from Somerset to Manchester, which was a great relief to me, because, you know, I was commuting from Manchester down to the West Country, and all of a sudden, the office was seven or eight miles away instead of being, like, 150 miles away. And um, I quickly rose through the ranks, if you can call it that. It was quite a small company but a sort of innovative company and a company that wasn't afraid to take risks. Yeah. Uh, there were basically three independent motoring publishing companies motorcycle publishing companies at the time. Two fairly two fairly big ones and one little one us. So it could move quickly, it could do things, it could change, it could launch a new title sometimes with great success, sometimes not. But I got a great experience. I worked across all the titles, um, custom, motor, custom motorbikes, classic motorbikes, classic American cars, scooters, all sorts of stuff. You know, like, I remember I was working on a scooter magazine, which I'd been working on for about five years, and Steve, the boss, came downstairs and said, you, you like Harley's, don't you? <laughs> I was like, sat there writing an article about a tuned-up Lambretta for the millionth time. Yeah. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, right, Monday, go to Harley Davidson UK in Daventry and pick up a Harley Davidson Fat Boy. I thought, right, okay, that was it. Just got moved to the Harley title. Uh, so, and my introduction was ride back because he said, you can ride a motorbike, can't you? And the thing was, well, yeah, yeah, because I'd ridden motorbikes before I got into scooters. Got you. You know, so yeah. I knew about how to, you know, yeah, ride a motorbike. And of course, when you come from a scooter to a motorbike, all of a sudden, it's, like, really easy to ride because those Italian scooters...
0: Changing gears, as are suddenly changed.
1: Especially, yeah. especially when you get them to produce way more power than the designers ever intended, are really tricky to, to keep yeah. going. I remember a few years ago, I thought I wanted another Lambretta, having been being off them for 20-odd years. And I rode one and I thought, wow, <laughs> I couldn't believe how. And I love them. I mean, to look at, to me, they're exquisite. A Lambretta SX200 or a Vespa GS 160. There's rarely been a better-looking vehicle than either of them two. They just look fabulous. Awful to ride. Sorry, guys. Awful. I've got a modern scooter. I've got a modern Vespa, uh, a reverend gore 125 LX, and uh, I've had an Aprilia scooters, reverend and Gos for the last sort of 15 years with disc brakes and... You know, loads of power and headlights that Work. aren't like aren't like yeah, a yeah. candle yeah, yeah. flickering in a stiff breeze. Yeah. You know, um, I think to look at great, but to ride no. so motorbikes relatively easy to ride because you know bigger wheels, the track straight, they turn better, more gl- ground clearance, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Thought, so, wow, here is a whole world of. Things with two wheels that actually don't want to throw you down the road. So, as
0: as journalists, you were following obviously the the Lambertas and the Italian uh, scooter scene, but was you also following the Japanese scene?
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: And the English scene declining as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and during, whilst I was um, the editor of Scooter Magazine, my favourite magazine and the one I look forward to coming out each month was Performance Bikes, which is the biggest selling motorcycle magazine in the UK. Now, sadly gone, to my amazement, you know, if you just said to me, in 20 years' time, if you said to me, here's the latest copy of PB, in 20 years' time this magazine won't exist, I would have been like, don't be ridiculous. You know, I loved it because it it was rock and roll motorcycle journalism. They used to do crazy stuff and they used to, and it was funny, you know. They kind of sent up the whole thing because the whole thing about performance bikes and, Um, and and fast street bikes is that there's only two places that you end up, hospital and jail. You'll find that out. And and if you think you're clever and you can avoid both of those, well, good luck to you, my friend. Mm. Because I remember there there were these guys who used to say to me, back in the day, they used to say to me, why don't you come out with us on Sundays, Steve? We all go off into Wales or up to North Yorkshire. You know, Barla, Devil's Bridge, all that sort of stuff. I was like, hmm... Yeah, okay. I think I'm busy, sort of thing. You know, the wife, all that sort of thing. I remember they that so got well. in so yeah, much yeah, trouble. Yeah. I remember they that so got well. In so much trouble, you know, both with people crashing yeah. and either being horrifically injured or killed. Is right, the thing, or people losing their driving licence. And one guy lost his driving licence, and as a consequence, lost his house, lost his business, yeah. and his wife left him. And you think, right, okay. If you think you're hardcore, how hardcore are you? Are you willing to, for a bit of fun on a Sunday, why not just go racing? Just go racing. Buy a cheap race bike, go to Three Sisters, go to Lidden Hill, Carnaby, Darley Moor, go yeah. to those places and race. And, and this is terrible. I, I feel like the old sort of rock star telling people not to take drugs. I mean, done loads myself. I've been banned for speeding. I've been pulled for crazy speeds. Back in the day, and now I've got an old Triumph Bonneville, and I like riding around on it, and it looks pretty, and it's got wire wheels and about 85 brake horsepower, and that's plenty for me, thank you very much. I
0: remember being a kid riding bikes around, and I, remember exactly, I know exactly what you talked about, you, the weekend thing, weekend warriors, I called them at times. <sighs> you used to get there ridiculous, fast at, at the time, motorbikes, and blast everywhere. And you see BMW riders, I think they were the boring ones. And now they, they but they survived, they didn't.
1: I'll tell you, I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. So we're doing, a, we're doing a piece about the Honda Fireblade, which is one of the, the greatest motorcycles, the original Fireblade. Yeah. By the way, if you can find a year one Fireblade, although the second gen was, was the one for me, the second gen's the one. But if you can find a year one Fireblade and it's not been messed with, buy it, buy it. Right, because they are going to go through the roof in in terms of price. Good luck finding one that hasn't been messed with. Good luck, but because Rebuilt, so so up. many of them were yeah. smashed up or hugely modified, if it's been if it's kind of just got different bars, different different pipe on it, different, it's got a power commander, it's got a seat conversion, you can put it back put it back to standard. But buy one because it is that to me that year one blade is the definition of a classic bike. Classic bikes aren't just old bikes, it's classic. Yeah. It defined an era in motorcycling. Yeah. And we went to do a piece with these guys in Wales, great set of guys, about the Fireblade. They had a club of Honda Fireblade owners. Some were standard, some were modified, some raced them, blah, blah, blah. They're a great bunch of guys. They wrote to Top Gear, first mention of Top Gear, wrote to Top Gear and said, uh, we've all got Honda Fireblades and we want Steve to come and ride. And they thought, yeah, yeah this is a great idea. Steve gets to meet these guys, ride with them. We meet in the, we meet, we go down there, we spend the night in a hotel locally, we meet the guys, we're all getting on great, we agree to meet in the morning for the shoot, we all meet up, the director gives them a bit of a pep talk about not exceeding the speed limit with the BBC, we have to be responsible. First crash, I looked at my watch, we hadn't got to 10 minutes. I saw it happen about two corners in front of me. We were following the camera car and I saw the guy bin it, and the bike hit the curb and flipped up in the air. I saw it going up in the air. And when I saw it going up in the air, I glanced at my watch and thought, we haven't got ten minutes in, and somebody's binned it. And that's group rides for you, mate. The problem with group rides is you've got one guy who on the choir has done quite a bit of racing and he's really handy and all that Mm. sort of stuff, and then you've got another guy who has got all the gear but absolutely no No idea, idea. and he's quaking in his boots. Mm. I went on an advanced riding course Mm. um, with the police in Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire, And the Times, the Times of London, sent a journalist who had a motorbike. And I could see that he wasn't quite happy. He had a a 1,000cc motorbike. He had a Yamaha Mm Thunderace 1,000cc, great big bike. He was only a little guy. He had all the right gear, riding gear and everything. Very tentative in the morning, you know. And the guy was trying to up the pace, very good instructor, Dave Luscombe. He was talking to us about all the techniques that you use to stay safe, but also you know, make progress as yeah, as we say yeah. on the road. He's a great. Dave's a great rider. So composed on the road and so quick. Taught me a lot. Anyway This guy was really struggling to keep up. Then in the afternoon his riding went two pieces. I mean just he was a total liability and I I, I, I didn't know if Dave had seen it and I said, That guy on the thunder race he said, Yeah yeah I'm gonna ask him to stand down and I could see that the guy was just relieved that he didn't have to do any more riding that day. When I spoke to him afterwards when we were having a coffee, he admitted to me he had never ridden a motorcycle in the rain. Never. And it started oh to rain. God. He'd never my ridden God. a motorcycle in the rain. And I thought, how do you get to a situation worse? Because that was the difference, Paul, between our generation yeah. who came up through the ranks yeah. and people who came after and people now who don't have a field bike with the mates ripping around on the old bowling green like we were, putting yep. traffic cones out and having races and, yep. you know, finding out how to corner and how to yeah. crash and all that sort yeah. of stuff, then getting a 50, then getting a 125, <laughs> then getting a 250, then getting a big bike. That was my progression. Yep. Field bikes, 50, 125, not a 250, 404 Honda, yep. and then big bikes. Yeah, same right. So, yeah. So, yeah. Now it's go and do a Crash course. I wish they wouldn't call it that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go and do a crash course. Buy a superbike.
0: Right. I want. To, I, I agree with every single word you said. About that, by the way, which well, is uh, <laughs> an unusual statement by me. But however, um, you mentioned Top Gear, so let's talk about Top uh,
1: Gear. Do we right. have to? Yes. <laughs> For once, you should be. Um, so, how did it happen? Chance. How old was you? Chance. I was twenty-five. Yeah. Which is really young for... for, I was easily the youngest presenter. Uh, And when you think about it, they've not really gone with anyone.
0: Have you seen it advertised somewhere? No.
1: No, no, chance. Like I say, we we were working out of offices in south Manchester in a quite nice leafy part, Hale, uh, part of Manchester. And um, there was a newsagent shop at the top of the village and I was the only person who commuted in from the north. Everyone came from Cheshire, lived in the Cheshire part or sort of Oldham or whatever. Anyway, I, was, I came in directly on that road. Yeah. So I was the one who went past the newsagent, so it was my job to stop and get a pint of milk for our cups of tea. Okay, yeah, Because, you know, you can't, we're British and we can't function mm. without endless cups of tea. So... I used to go in the newsagent, and you know me, I'm a chatty guy. I'd talk to the, they were run by two ladies, twins. Never knew which was which, because they were twins, and they had the same haircut, wore the same clothes. So we'd always have a joke about that. And I met a guy in there um, and spoke to him, and once he was on a BMW, a very conservative, upright BMW with a great big screen and crows of panniers on the side and all that, set up for touring, called Dennis. So I go in one day... He starts talking to me, and he said, uh, as I was leaving, I went, right, okay, I'm off, and I said, uh, he said, hold on, and he came after me, he said, you do know who I am, don't you? And I said, yeah, you're Dennis, you've got a BMW. He said, I'm one of the producers of Top Gear. I said, great, like that, and just I was like, went outside, and he followed me outside, and he said, I think you might be all right on the programme. And I went, oh, right, well, what shall I do? He said, come down, and come down to Birmingham, and we'll We'll give you a screen test. So, right, when? A couple of weeks. It was very informal. Can I just dive in there? Because this, this thought came to me
0: then. How big a deal, how big a show was Top Gear at the time?
1: Quite a big deal. Um, not as big as it subsequently became, obviously, yeah. but it was still easily the biggest show on BBC So too. you
0: knew it well, You know, obviously because you are in the banking world. Well, no, I
1: didn't watch it. Right, well, OK. Because it was really, at the time, I think one of the reasons that... They wanted to bring people like me on. They'd already got Jeremy. Jeremy was already there. Clarkson was already there. The reason they wanted me much younger than everybody else was because they wanted to get away from the kind of... It was very old-school BBC. It was a consumer show. You know, um, Chris Goffey or Frank Page or Michelle Newman would do a long article about road safety or child seats, which was the best child seat, or which was the best roof rack you could... Honestly, you yeah. could buy for your car. Yeah. It was a consumer Lead show. Sort
0: of show. Okay.
1: And and the guys that had taken over wanted to <coughs> drag it, kicking and screaming, into the 70s. <laughs> well, no, they, want, the, they the wanted ages. to update and they, yeah. So uh, I went down there, I screen tested with two established... The, the funny thing was, I got down no, there... No, no, stop, 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 stop. Oh, right, you right,
0: there. Okay, you, you get the call
1: to do it. How did you feel? Was well, it a, a big thing? Was no. it really exciting? No, no, no. Because I, I just thought, well, this isn't going to happen. And at the time, I was the editor of a motorbike magazine. I was twenty-five, and, and and I could ring up any of the motorcycle manufacturers, get them to send me a bike. I was getting paid to do that. I was getting at the weekends. I'd go to events, get hammered, take pictures. You know, yeah, misbehave, get paid for that. I thought, is there so a better life job? Was, life was good. There's a better job than that. Not really. You know, so I wasn't that bothered about being on Top Gear. I was I was I'd actually been in a couple of films and that was kind of ticking away in the background. Because my daughter was a child model and with Nigel Martin Smith, the guy yeah, who yeah. invented the band Take That here in Manchester, Boss Boss Agency. Um and so as a consequence of that I got parts in a couple of films and one of the films I was in I had three three lines, and that meant I could get an equity card. So I thought, right, okay, well, I might end up being an actor. That might be the direction I go in. I can get an equity card. Second film, I've got three lines. They they wrote three lines in because I got on so well with the, the team and the director and, and the second assistant, who was named after a racing driver in this island. And so we got on because I was into bikes, cars, all that sort of stuff. It might be an actor. So I wasn't that bothered about Top Gear. Okay. And I think, here's the tip, kids, if you want to get into that sort of thing, I think it's one of the reasons that, that I got it, because I wasn't that bothered, whereas some people were like, oh, my God, this is the biggest thing ever. And it was like, well, it might be, but it might not be. They were very clever back then. What they'd do is instead of grandly announcing they'd got a new presenter like they did with Chris Evans, which was disastrous. Um, I knew it would be. Oh, the quid to get me. Um, finally, they've caught up with me. Anyway, um, what they do is they bring you on as an expert guest. Ah. So they get another presenter to interview you. Yeah. And then they go, what do you think of that guy? Or, yeah. you know, or go, oh, yeah, he's all right, I suppose. Slowly introduce you so that they could also slowly get rid of you without anyone really noticing. Okay. So the first couple of times I came on, it was as like, it was another person, another presenter saying, Let's talk now to the editor of Blah 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 magazine, Steve Berry. What do you think of this, Steve? Well, I think it's really good. Thank you. Back to the studio. That sort of thing, you know.
0: So the filming was done. How many times a week did you go down there? was <laughs> started? What happened?
1: Well, uh,
0: he, he, after you talked about this, you brought on slowly. Yeah. So he was there once a week.
1: No, I'd say what happened, right? So a couple of weeks after I'd been on the screen test, and there were a couple of presenter presenters there. One was a Radio 1 DJ who my partner subsequently worked with years later. He became a film director and she worked on a movie that he directed. was so weird. And I was there with him and there was a kids' TV presenter as well. Now, the problem for them two was they were presenters. And so when we went for our screen test, what we were asked to do was write a script, presented with a vehicle and asked to write a script. They just sat there. Right. Like, what do, what do you mean write a script? I was like, right, okay, <laughs> right, 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 right. Because that's how I earned my code: writing, writing and taking pictures of cars and bikes. So here's a car, write, um, yeah. well, you know, here's a bike, write a script about it, and then in the afternoon, here's a car, write a script about it. Try and make it last a minute. People might go, oh, a minute, is that all? <laughs> go on then, write a script that lasts a minute and actually goes, like a good article, beginning, end, middle and takes you on a bit of a journey. And the car we were presenting with in the afternoon was the Mazda RX-7, the one with the double bubble roof, uh, with a Wankel engine, yep. pardon the expression. Yep. And uh, it's passed into legend that what I did at the end of my one-minute presentation was I jumped up on the roof, I climbed up on the bonnet, stood on the roof, and said, not bad, Mazda, remember RX7, not bad for the people who brought you light bulbs. And that was my end line. But what I didn't do when I was trying to get onto Top Gear is climb up on the roof of a 37,000 pound, and this is 25 years ago, 37,000 pound sports car. Because I thought that might, because I was wearing motorbike boots, I thought that might put them off me. But so many people have gone, yeah, yeah, you climbed up on the car and did the last line from "Stood on the Roof, didn't you? I just go, yeah. <laughs> you know what they say, mate? Print the legend.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you they said to you, you got the job?
1: Kind of. Oh, blimey, it's intriguing. Yeah. they sort of said, yeah, yeah, we think you're great and uh, we, we'll call you. Six months. Six months. Yeah, I told my mates as well, wow. hey, I'm going to be on Top Gear. Great. I've been down for a screen testing, they said they like me, so they're going to put you on the show. Fantastic. So it gets like... So you went back to work. Yeah, yeah. Went back to work, which was very demanding, yeah. but enjoyable. Yeah. So I'm working away. You're telling people all around you. Yeah? yeah, and here's the thing. Every couple of weeks, they call me. Hi, Steve. It's uh, it's John from Top Gear. John yeah. Bentley, who's been a guest on the yeah, show. Yeah. Hi, Steve. Hello, Steve. It's Bentley here. Yeah. People know him from Gadget Show. The yeah. posh guy with the... Yeah. White, hair. Hair. Yeah. the white hair. The yeah. white hair, yeah. White now, yeah. Hello, how are you? What are you up to? Oh, how interesting. Right, speak to him, bye. Click. He was gaslighting me. That's what he was doing. <laughs> gaslighting me. <sighs> Except nobody knew what it was then. Yeah, he was gaslighting me. So I'd go in the local bikers pub, mm. the horse and jockey in Berry. Yeah, Great pub, gone now. What a shame. People would say, so, uh still going to be on the old Top Gear, are we, Steve? <laughs> I'd go, Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I thought, anyway, I rang him up, right? So I rang him. I rang him six months. I rang him and said, What am I going to be on? And he said, "Uh, Is Monday okay? I went, Yeah, okay. Uh, Where where should we shoot it? I said, New BMW bike. I said, Bolton. So he said, All right, we'll send, we'll be in touch. And four days later, I'm there with a BMW, new BMW 1100, Mm. doing a piece. But six months, you know, but. Ringing me up every couple of weeks just to like you're simmering a pan of milk, you know, yeah, like just yeah. making sure you've got the little you've got a little bit of gas on, but you're trying not to let it come over the top. I, I remember you being on
0: uh, so well because obviously I was into bikes, I had a bike, and, yeah. and the only thing you could watch on TV at the time
1: that was it was you just that you, yeah, yeah.
0: You're waiting, you wait. I was bored by the cars, I wanted to get to your bit about the bikes,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I watch it now and it's embarrassing, it's so stilted. We
0: didn't see that at the time though, because obviously things move on, don't they? Yeah. So,
1: well, uh, even yeah, even sort of, if you watch it back then, from the, There's was
0: conflict as well between you and Clarkson. Um, well, in the was. early
1: nineties, it's hilarious. See two things: Jeremy Clarkson wearing a tie with a leather jacket. I will tell you, what he looked like obviously <laughs> he looked like B. A. Robertson was oh, yeah, a style icon, yeah, yeah. the Bang Bang guy, because he had a bit of a mullet, Clarkson. Yeah, and he'd he'd sort of. He'd rock a leather jacket, a motorbike jacket, although I don't know, he's, I think he's ridden a motorbike a couple of times, whatever. And a tie, like a sort of, like he was in the cars, you know, like he was in one of those American new wave bands. And the, the funny thing is, his speaking voice, the, the, mine hasn't changed. You, you go by, I speak the same then as I do. Yeah. Clarkson's voice has changed as much as the Queen's. If you listen to old broadcasts, the old Christmas broadcast by the Queen, She's at such a pitch that if she went any higher, only dogs would be able to hear it. She's like, well, they members of the Empire and the Commonwealth. Like, she's ramped that back right down. Yeah. And Clarkson's speaking voice, presenting voice, back in the day was hilarious. Just go back, like, old Top Gear. He's sort of considerably posher uh, than he is now.
0: Did you get on with everyone at the BBC? No. No? No. Did your face fit? No, not at all. And, and there was so you one... was always the, uh, the black sheep, the, the outsider... Yeah, of course. D- ...during your time there?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, they... <laughs> and and it, when I started on the show, they got piles of letters from people, like apoplectic with rage that someone who spoke with a regional accent was allowed to appear on BBC mm. Two, which was like, you know, the posh... When there were three, three or four TV stations... Mm. TV channels rather, yeah. BBC Two was the posh one, wasn't it? It yeah. was the one that people would watch to to seem clever. Yeah. Oh no, no, we don't watch, uh, you know, whatever game show or soap yeah. opera was on ITV. We were watching a documentary on BBC Two, and then we watched Top Gear. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden there was me with a regional accent. It was like they didn't go, oh, he's got a regional accent. They didn't go, oh, he's worked on loads of motorbike magazines and he's ridden, oh, by then, God knows how many yeah. bikes. I mean, I remember one day. Uh, I worked on which bike, the consumer magazine which we had. On a single day, I rode 24 motorcycles in a day for the, for the, for the so just up and down miles and miles to get pictures of all these bikes switching from one to another, everything from like a 50 up to like a giant touring bike. So they didn't go, oh, yeah, he's obviously ridden a lot of bikes. It was, oh, my God, he's got a regional accent. Yeah, it's yeah. the end of the world.
0: But doors must have opened for you, though, because you've done such a big show. Uh, around you. I mean, I'm not talking about opening supermarkets. <laughs> but I mean,
1: Oh, I did that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: But it does some additional earnings, I presume. And I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, that's where the real money was. Was you well
1: paid? Not really. No. Because, and, and there was a reason, because we were on, I found out that we were on the same money as the open university people in the middle of the night who, who were, when you came in from yeah. the pub, yeah, back yeah, in the yeah, uh, yeah. and you turned the telly on, there was a bloke with a tweed jacket with leather elbow patches and a beard, not unlike the one that I'm rocking at the moment yeah. because I need to see a barber, going, the indices of X over Y is the equal... You know, there was a guy doing that. Yeah. They were on the same pay grade as we were because we were a factual consumer. Sure, we weren't considered... To earn money, you had to be in the entertainment world and we were not considered... I'll give you an example of how we were not considered to be in the entertainment world. One of the presenters got offered a panto gig, yeah, right. Which for a lot of people in the entertainment industry in the UK, not this year, but most years, is a real big paying gig. And they said, "Oh no, 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 we couldn't, we couldn't." They said, to, "He said to me, he said they won't let me do it because they said, they said um, it's not, it's not what they want presenters of Top Gear to be doing." I'll give you an example of mine. They wouldn't let me be on Through the Keyhole. Do you remember wow. that? Yeah, yeah. David, who would live yeah, yeah. in a house like this? Yeah. Let's look. They wouldn't let me do that because I, I said to them, oh, Through the Keyhole have, have approached me and they want me to be on that show. People, they want to come around my house and they wanted to put, like, clues, like yeah. a motorbike, yeah, petrol tank or whatever, you know, and... Lloyd Grossman going, yeah. oh, what's yeah, this, yeah, yeah. David? Yeah. David Frost back in the studio. I thought, wow, I've made it. I'm going to be up through the keyhole. They went, no, 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 no. Too frivolous. But they were kind of right in a way because at the time we would do things about, you know, we'd do a review every year, Euro NCAP safety and all that sort of stuff. We had to present serious stuff. I'd been on the 9 o'clock news on BBC. i have been on the Today programme a few times on Radio 4 talking about serious stuff to do with motoring.
0: So well, I can kind hell. of
1: see, I can kind of see. <clears throat> but of course, now that it's, all right, Paddy, hey, oh, oh, hello, hello, Freddie, have you got a Lamborghini? It, that's all completely gone. I mean, just gone. I mean, the show is transformed beyond yeah, all recognition. But I want to talk about back
0: in their day uh, and fame, really. Fame? How, how does fame affect you? Uh, it, must, it must affect you in some way.
1: No, because I stayed in Berry. I thought a bit moving but to... But when Bury. you
0: went back to that pub, the horse and jockey... Yeah. And the people weren't laughing then. Uh, was pe- it going to be on Top Gear? When yeah, yeah, when it was gear? on, it yeah. was different, yeah.
1: Oh, but all people would just take the mickey, you know. They'd Did, just like... And, I, and
0: I, how, would, how do you think you changed because of it? Because you would have done. Uh, right, OK. You, you say to me... That yeah. you know your an accent and and all that, but you yeah. yourself, anybody would change because if that success, it's a different world, isn't it? Slightly, yeah,
1: yeah. And so and you, and you, and you know,
0: you, some people go like you know big headed type yeah. attitudes of things, uh, and other things beneath them. How did you change? Right,
1: I remember I remember going to because of course what I what I realized quickly was that the motorcycle world in the UK was limited, and that if I stuck with motorcycles, then I'd be limited in, in what i get offered and what i could do and and i always had an interest in cars in my in my upbringing there is never really that much differentiation between bikes and cars they were machines And, and tractors were machines farm machinery because my father's family were farmers my mother's family my grandfather was a a cop and uh he was um very interesting cars. He'd ridden motorbikes as a younger man. He had Jags, Triumphs. He had a Vitesse, a two thousand five hundred Pi, a Mark Two Jag. But machines, motorbikes, scooters, cars. There wasn't that yeah. divide. Yeah. So I'd always been interested in cars, and I translated that interest um, that I'd had into starting to do car stuff on the show, which. Mr. Clarkson didn't like at all. (laughs) You know, as long as I was kind of kept in my little bike ghetto, my little two wheel ghetto, that was okay. But they brought in a director, a Fijian guy called Vino. Can I just stop you there though?
0: You've sort of veered away in many ways from the question about how it affected you personally. Uh, Right, okay. People just stare at and point at you in the supermarket, whatever, Yeah. You know, and that hadn't happened before.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and people would what talk, to me? Like? People would talk to me like they knew me. They okay. would They would just start conversations. There'd be no preamble because they didn't think they needed a preamble because they, they, I realised it. Because i think, who are you? Cause, so because I was in my hometown, sometimes I couldn't work out whether it was people from school who I didn't recognise... <laughs> Because I'd be like reaching for the frozen peas in in Asda, and somebody go that bike that Honda like this leg, no preamble that bike that Honda what um, blah, blah blah. I remember I was I was I'd gone to the hospital to have an I was having an, um, an operation that wasn't related to a motorcycle accident although I have had a few of those uh, and the surgeon. Straight away recognised me. I was lying on what the Americans call a gurney, or we probably call a trolley. I was lying on a trolley being wheeled to theatre, and the surgeon, instead of talking about the operation, just launched into loads of questions about this car that. I, that video. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think of? Well, what yeah. about the Honda? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> you know, you just realise that people start to think that they know you. So, did you become more protective? Because no. it, wasn't, it wasn't like I was super-duper famous. You know, I'm from Bury, Berry, Lancashire. And so was Victoria Wood, the comedian and, and writer. If you go to Berry, there's a statue of Victoria Wood. Here's the thing. That woman had no love for the town. As Soon as she could get out, she got out and she never came back. You find a picture of her past childhood in the town of Bury. You'll find a statue of her. You won't find a photograph of her. I heard her being talked about on Radio 4 a few weeks ago. And this is a direct quote from her. Barry didn't have much. Pause. Oh, an abattoir. That's not somebody we'd love for the town. I had a choice. I could have gone to London. I could have gone, you know, mm. and tried to make more of a media career there. Mm. But I was married, young family. I thought, no, I want to bring my kids up here where I was brought up. My kids were born in the hospital I was born in, went to the primary school that I went to, you know, lived in the town and were brought up in the town. That I was. And that was, looking back, probably not a good idea. We should have gone to London. (laughs) But I went to London too late. I went to London when my kids had grown up.
0: Um, So you thought, you know, you're looking back now, you move moved to London, more opportunities would have arose.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because if you decide you're going to make a career in the media, you've got to move to where the media is. You know, it's like if you're in the movie business, you don't live in poughkeepsie idaho you live in california or new york (laughs) you know if you're in that or as my missus is you know she's in the we, we talk about all the time on the show because you know we met through our interest in motorcycles and cars and all that sort of stuff and and in many ways she's the ideal partner for me not because she keeps me in line but because her interest in Cars and bikes and motoring culture is almost equal to mine, so you know we're, we're sort of perfectly matched. But um, she's in Vancouver, which is is where you know where the Canadian movie industry is and where where she works. So you move to where your work is, I <clears> think. <throat> and I, I foolishly stayed in in Lanks, you know, going shopping on the market. But, All right, people, hey, Wanker! All that sort yeah, of yeah, people yeah, shouting yeah, at me yeah, in the street. Yeah. People shout at you in the street when you become. Reasonably well known. You walk, you f- you find that you don't really want to walk too much down streets because people shout at you out of vans and the things that they shout out of vans aren't necessarily complimentary.
0: During that time, in the of the height of uh, your career with Top Gear, I know yeah. we carried on with the radio show and yeah. other things happened out of it. And but I'm saying we've got ten minutes left of the show. Oh. Can we carry on at another stage? Because we're
1: not going to get through this. Wow! Yeah. Well, we could actually. T- we, there's a lot of talk about me here, and, it, and, and I know I we're not talk- we're not covered in music whatsoever. Well, here's the thing. I find it I find it quite odd to talk about myself. I'm I'm a lot happier talking about the cars and the bikes and the people I know, but, rather than myself. But I find on it this
0: occasion. The producer
1: says
0: (laughs) we are talking about you. So so, uh, during the height of it, music and gigs and, you know, I'll say, well, what year would it have been? How long was you on Top Gear for altogether? Ten years. Ten years.
1: Yeah, because what happened was in 99 it all stopped, it all finished because there was, um, it's BBC politics, which is boring for people, but there was a thought that Top Gear had got too laddish, there were too many men, not enough women on the show. The content was was very sort of sexist, all that sort of stuff. And so they tried to reinvent Top Gear. And if you remember, they got rid of all of us, yeah, and they brought it back with Kate Humble, yeah. the Nature presenter, yeah. Julia Bradbury. It was awful, and it was awful. Yeah. And then they during
0: went, your time there, how many people sort of came and went?
1: Quite a few, quite a few, and, and quite a few right uh, motoring journalists who I admired, who just didn't make the transition from the written word to the presented word on TV. It's why I didn't think Chris Evans would have worked on Top Gear. You know, I got asked a lot about that. My phone rang constantly. I remember at the time, yeah. Yeah. I, and Huge I, news. People asking me about... and I, I, I felt mean. I mean, Chris got his start literally just down the road yeah, from and where we right. are at Piccadilly Radio, yeah, well, a few doors way. down yeah, yeah. from where we are. And he's great at that kind of... Boy next door, nice guy, zoo format radio. He's genius at that, but I didn't think it would work on Top Gear, no. and it didn't. It just
0: so other people went through the hands. I mean, was you always fearing that you'd get kicked out of the show? Was yeah, it, was that all generally the time. Very oh fun? yeah, completely. I know a certain radio presenter who's always felt like that as well. You know him well. Uh, so uh, every year, uh, when contracts come up, he's always
1: yeah. scared of losing his job.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can't work that way,
1: can you? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, because I, I, thought, I thought you can't live like that. No. You, can't, you can't constantly be thinking, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? So I just said yes to almost everything that I got offered. So I ended up doing a consumer show for ITV. I did a show called Men's Zone.
0: <laughs> yeah. That sounds very... Men's
1: Men's Zone. On BBC... Then late night TV? No, it was Saturday morning. It okay. was kind of in that... It was in that Tim Lovejoy... World, yeah. ...slot yeah, yeah. Yeah. of Saturday morning, James Martin, Saturday morning telly. And it was me and another Mancunian, um, Tim Grundy. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, who got... Did Tim get started at Piccadilly yeah. as well? Piccadilly yeah. Radio, Piccadilly, just down yeah. the road from yeah. where we are yeah. talking now. And we did this show and it was a clip show. And they built us a man den with a jukebox and car hubcaps on the wall, and the two of us would be... It was like something off the fast show. The two of us would be sat there in these car... Adapted car seats, like they used on Top Gear. This is before they did it on Top Gear. Old car seats turned into chairs. And um, I know they're a chair, they're a seat, they're a chair, whatever. Turned into furniture. And um, saying, yeah... um, Introducing clips, basically, of rally cross and like all sorts of stuff, all sorts of crazy stuff that the BBC had. Like I said, I did, I did a, a a consumer show for ITV with Judy Finnegan from Richard and Judy. Me and her were the presenters of this consumer show. Only lasted one series. wasn't very good. <laughs> but the reason I did stuff is because there'll come a day when people don't aren't asking me to do stuff every two minutes. Because and, that happens to everybody.
0: And, you know, as a young lad moving into that world, you say you're the youngest person to do the show. Yeah. Did you know that already? I mean, as you moved in there, did you think that I may get sacked next week?
1: Yeah, of course I did. Simple as that. Yeah. Especially when I got banned for speeding. I thought, that's it. I'm That's it. I'm out of here. I called the boss from the side of the motorway. I got pulled up. I was on a Yamaha XJR 1300. And the cop who stopped me was in a Subaru, unmarked Subaru Impreza Turbo. Which is ironic, because at the time, I did I was on the commercial for the Super <laughs> wow. Turbo. Yeah. I was the guy doing the commercial. Uh, and he stopped me, one of those, and I was like, oh, yeah, the, the new Subaru. Um, and he was furious. He said he'd been chasing me for eight miles. <laughs> I was just, just batted along on this big Yamaha, and I wasn't oh, going that fast. But I thought, oh, this is a six-pointer, because it was over 100 miles an hour. You know, yeah, it, it's it sounds ooh, over a hundred miles an hour, and you think, yeah, but the, what's the top speed of that bike? One fifty, one sixty? You know, it's it's not the bikes that do two hundred miles an hour. So is a hundred such a terrible thing? Anyway, the authorities seem to think that it is. So I thought, right, I'm going to get banned because I had I already had nine points or something like that for various offences. So I called the boss and said, I've just been stopped for one hundred and twelve or something like that, and he said, right okay so he said are you coming in I said yeah I'm coming into the office that's where I was going so they had a council of war and it, about a year later I got a, did I get a six month ban six month ban uh, and we kept it very quiet I just went to court on my own you know I was coached I was told what to do I was, don't say this don't tell anybody don't tell your family you know all this wow you know so just go to court plead guilty don't go into the court building until two or three minutes before you're due in. Leave immediately. Try and go out through a different exit, all that sort of stuff. But here's the thing. I continued to present on the show, <laughs> even though I was banned. <laughs> do you know what they did? Go Sent me abroad. <laughs> so I spent, I, basically, there was a six-month period where it was at the start of the show, Quentin would do the, Quentin, to Elves Wilson, yeah. would do the introduction, and he'd say... Tonight on Top Gear, Jeremy drives the new Ferrari. Michelle has an item about child seat safety. And Steve Berry is in Florida for Daytona Bike Week. I <laughs> just, because here was the deal. You could go, if you knew you were going to get banned, you could go and get this thing, which I think is going to come back, called an IDP, an International Driving Permit, which I think will have to come back yep, yep. because of Brexit. Yep. So you go while you'd still got your licence, yep. go to an AA or RAC office, which yep. they used to have. There was one in Bury. Yep. Show them your driving licence and another form of identity. and They give you an IDP, which looked like a passport. It had a big impressive crest on the front, two photographs of you stamped, yep. signed, and they've closed the loophole, obviously. Yeah, but yep. back then, you could drive abroad on that. So, <laughs> even though I was banned here... I could go abroad. So they just basically sent me abroad for six months. It's great. I'm not recommending it.
0: Not recommending it. On that note, Mr. Barrett, it's time for us to say oh. goodbye. Part two will
1: follow. Oh, God, I hate talking about myself, as you can probably tell. <laughs> we'll see you later. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry. There's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.